global health crisis we're facing right now has threatened the livelihood and mental health of countless musicians. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub, and their work is more vital than ever. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give artists, crew, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline is currently hosting virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breathwork sessions. Osiris is proud to partner with Backline. To donate, learn more, or to get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. Again, that's backline.care. Take a step back, take another step back, take another step back. Welcome to 36 from the Vault, a tape-by-tape journey through the Grateful Dead's 36-volume Dick's Pick series. I'm Stephen Hyden. And I'm Rob Mitchum. We're two music writers who love the dead and love live albums. We especially love deep dives into the archives of beloved classic rock bands. From 1993 to 2005, the Grateful Dead began releasing the first trickle of music from its legendary vault, featuring shows selected from across all eras by Dead archivist and superfan Dick Latvala. In each episode, we'll talk about one volume of the Dick's Pick series, discussing the context of when the show was recorded and released, how it holds up today, and anything else that comes to mind. We invite you to listen to each volume, then join us for a freewheeling conversation about the greatest, weirdest, most unprofessional American band of all time, and the series that captured them best. So join us on 36 from the Vault, brought to you by Osiris. Oh, and of course, please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode number 96 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. They're usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes Fish fans can get a bit myopic, especially when they're stuck inside all day like you probably should be right about now. So... We're trying to get the focus on some other bands that are out there, expand your mind a bit when you're in quarantine. But really, this podcast is for anybody who uh, just wants to learn about some new music and doesn't mind sitting through uh, some fist chatter to get there. Absolutely. And uh, as we do with these episodes during quarantine, we are checking in, making sure that you, our dear listener, our friends are doing well right now amidst all this craziness. We are taking some time to step back from the insanity ourselves, have a little bit of fun, you know, record some 
hot fish takes, talk about jams and talk about other music that we absolutely love. And we're very excited because in this episode, not only are we focused on a really overlooked, but I would say excellent jam from the end of summer 2009, the backwards down the number line from Saratoga Springs, New York on August 16th, 2009. But we're joined by our good friend and one of the bravest and most incredible people on planet Earth right now, Kevin Finkel, an anesthesiologist in Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, Kevin, uh, he joined us on our Broadway episode. Is that episode 88? Somewhere in there. I don't Somewhere in the high 80s. High 80s, can't remember. And um, yeah, he's been one of my closest friends for the vast majority of my life. And right now he's an anesthesiologist in the front lines at Hartford Hospital involved uh, in the intubation of COVID-19 patients. So we kind of just wanted to have him on to talk about his experience in doing that, what he's seeing on a um, day-to-day basis. In addition, him and I have probably seen about 50 fish shows together, so we also wanted to help him get his mind off work and talk some fish with us as well. So we're uh, very much looking forward to hearing him speak. So some of the themes you can see in this episode include the big return this is my own nine review and uh spec through the years on that note let's get to the fish let's get to uh my good friend kevin finkel episode of Beyond the Pond, we've got a bit of a special guest, a guy who uh, I've known since I was seven years old, one of my closest friends in the world who I've seen many, many fish shows with. You may know him from uh, the Beyond the Pond Broadway episode. This is uh, my good friend Kevin Finkel, who I specifically wanted to have on because when he's not um, chasing his three kids around the house and listening to fish, he's an anesthesiologist. And he's been on the front lines lately, and I think about him, think about him every day, and just wanted to, you know, have him on to kind of talk a bit about what that's like. Kev, hey, how Dave. you doing, man? Good, Dave. How are you? Uh, good as can be uh-huh. expected, in that I'm healthy and bored. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's good. Good to be good to be healthy. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. These are some crazy times. I would certainly say so. Mm-hmm. You're at, at Hartford Hospital mostly, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. So it, okay. 
Yeah, so we're we're a big tertiary hospital, about eight hundred something beds, and so we're we're kind of the epicenter, one of the main epicenters of for Connecticut for all the the COVID patients. And as anesthesiologists, we're the ones that are dealing with intubating these patients. So we put in the breathing tubes and for them when they get in respiratory failure. And uh, when whenever you intubate somebody, they're it's likely to you're kind of at the highest risk of contamination because any sort of coughing or sputum, anything like that, can easily contaminate the uh, the person who's in the room. So we have a lot of protective equipment that we have to wear each time. What does that entail exactly? Um, well, there's different levels of it, but um, and I and I I was telling Brian before uh, we started that we're, we're actually pretty lucky that um, at Hartford Hospital they've got some, a good systems. Um, we have uh, like we kind of we're wearing you know our, under our, we have our scrubs and then we have shoe covers, we have a gown, we have a full Tyvek suit that kind of looks like you know what you see in like Chernobyl the the, the docu series. <laughs> and uh, I have there's different types of masks you wear. We've got like the N95 is kind of our backup, but we have these other ones that are like uh, P100, which are full face respirators. They look like the ga- like a typical gas mask. But uh, we actually have these things called PAPRs, which stands for positive airway pressure respirators, um, and they kind of look like the Ebola suits, where they blow it, it covers your your face and it blows uh, filtered air into it. And then on top of that, we put another hood on there, and then we put another gown on top of that. So Jeez. yeah, it's 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 a it's a long process, and we have a special airway team that is de- that's two dedicated anesthesiologists that go in and do it whenever we're called to intubate a patient. One person. Um, puts on the equipment. The other person kind of monitors, make sure it's done correctly, and and is also gowned up and ready to go in. But they stay outside. We send everybody out. We put the patient to sleep, put the breathing tube in, um, clean off. There's a whole process involving taking off all this equipment. Um, you have to wash your hands. Uh, it's actually six times between every layer of clothes that comes off or layer of equipment, um, and then you yeah. come out and. And you just uh, you're just constantly uh, hoping you're you're safe, and you know. So it's we've got while you're in there, you feel good. It, actually, the biggest concern I have really is when I'm taking the stuff off because sure. all it takes is like one misstep and like oh I touched my face or I touched my hand or like oh I touched some place that has some sputum there. And and so the other thing is that when someone coughs, the the big the big issue with COVID is that um, the way it could get transmitted is that it can get um, it, it's a it's a droplet born uh, transmission so it, it, it really needs to be on some sort of mucus or cough or something but the problem is is that when somebody coughs or sneezes it gets aerosolized and that can that can float in the air for like they're not really sure exactly how long but they usually they say like 15 to 30 minutes so within that time frame even though you may think you're okay it, it, theoretically you could still get some uh, contamination at that point. Um, so it's really important to wipe down over several, you know, steps, um, take off the equipment in the proper, proper way. And, and some places are even waiting, um, 15 minutes before anyone enters or exits the room each time, uh, an intubation occurs. Mm. When a person gets in, I mean, when someone gets intubated, have any of these people been like success stories? Do you like, what happens? Have you seen people get discharged or do you just, is it kind of something you forget about, or what's like the process afterwards? Well, we, um, the people on the airway team, 
um, we just kind of go from intubation to intubation. And I would say on a, tw- uh, we have like a, it's essentially like a 12 hour shift, anywhere between like four to eight intubations on that shift, I would say. Um, so it's hard for us to know exactly which patient we like, we don't really follow up with those patients, right. but some of, my, some of my colleagues are also working as uh, ICU doctors as well, because the ICUs have just exploded with numbers of patients. We've converted all, all of our recovery rooms into ICUs. Um, we've converted our step-down units, which are like the almost ICUs, into full ICUs. Um, and there are there have definitely been some success stories. People have come off the ventilators. Um, unfortunately, a lot of patients um, have died after being put on the ventilator. Um, but the pro- what happens is these patients, they get into this respiratory failure, and um, they just need time, and they need a lot of time on the ventilator. And sometimes it's like, you know, we're, we're kind of – you know, they talk about this, the, how there's the rise and, you know, looking to peak. The problem is there's still all these people who are coming in, getting intubated, but they stay on the ventilators. Right. Um, so it, it takes time until they come off. Um, I actually, I can give you, if you're interested, I, I have some statistics. We get these daily statistics just to, you know, to, to see what it's sure. like. So, you know, in, in Connecticut, we've had 14,755 COVID positive patients, um, 868 deaths. I know in New York it's been much much higher. I mean, New York New York's probably the worst. It's the, the epicenter. Mm. Um, I know in Colorado, I don't think it's been nearly as bad. Actually, there's a no. there's a great website. If you look up anyone who's interested, um, the best website is if you search John Johns Hopkins COVID. It's kind of the epicenter for all the the live statistics. It, can, it breaks it down by state. It breaks it down by um, the the world map, and it can show you all the information you want to see. Um, so I highly recommend looking at that. It gives you a lot of great information. It gives you all the numbers of people who have passed away, who people have contracted it, people who have who have done well with it. Um, we had so I'll just tell you, like at, at, you know, at our institution, we have you know they said there were, we have 191 patients with COVID. 19 and 24 under investigation. Um, that's as of today. Uh, the good news is we had 17 patients who were successfully transitioned out of the hospital. So that's in the last 24 wow. hours. So people are getting better from this, but we also did have six yeah. people die in the last 24 hours. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's scary. It's a really scary thing. Um, but there are some success stories. People are, are getting better. And I know I was telling Brian beforehand, it's hard to know who are the people who are going to be, who's going to do poorly and who's going to do well. Like we had a person who was a a guy around my age who his whole family had COVID, but he was the only one that got really sick and we had to intubate him. Um, You know, I think he's doing well, but you know, it's hard to say. Like, it's just, it's just a scary disease. You don't really know who's going to get it and who's going to do poorly. So obviously Kevin, you know, you went to school for to become an anesthesiologist and you know i've got to imagine like in your like prior to this like you were aware of or i'm i'm i, I don't want to assume but i'm guessing that you have seen some trauma within your overall career um have you ever seen anything that's comparable to this and like if not how do you prepare yourself day to day for what you, what you go in and do? I, I don't think anyone that I work with in like most, and most people's careers have ever seen anything like this. I mean, the last thing yeah. we had that was like this, of this magnitude was like almost a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu. Right, right, um, right, right. I mean, there's been other mild 
scares, you know, you know, like the H1N1 flu and, you sure. know, th- those didn't explode into these giant pandemics. So it's really, um, it's unprecedented. We've never had anything like this that like shuts the world economy down and completely changes our hospital system. Um, what we do to prepare for it is we have just a lot of, I mean, it's, it's, we're fortunate that we live in a time right now where we have a lot of data and we have a lot of easy communication amongst everyone. So we have like daily um, you know, our, our like virtual conferences, um, and there's, we've changed to give us information. Um, we have, uh, we've kind of changed our roles a lot. So typically most of the cases we were doing, um, you know, like my, my specialized training is in, uh, regional anesthesia, which is doing nerve blocks, mostly for orthopedic surgeries. Um, people, people getting like, you know, total knee replacements, um, you know, hips, uh, you know, shoulder replacements and things like that. So, um, those are all elective surgeries. So pretty much all of those things have, have stopped occurring. Um, and a lot of our surgeries are, are elective and they've, they've all stopped. So what we've started doing though, is a lot of the docs who are, you know, so I started working on like this airway team. So doing that, we have a lot of the regular anesthesiologists are now become ICU intensivists. So they work in the ICUs doing shifts like that. Um, we also have in, in anesthesia, there's different there's different models. Um, there's like an anesthesiologist who's an anesthesia doctor. There's also um, uh, CRNAs, uh, nurse anesthetists, mm-hmm. who are um, uh, n- nurses who get specialized training to, be, to administer anesthesia. A lot of them have started working in the ICUs as well, too, because they all have ICU experience. So it's pretty much, it, it's kind of like a you're, we're all just being triaged into different locations. Um, you see people all throughout the whole hospital, like, you know, who are like, Nurses now that are screening people as they come in, um, you know, checking temperatures and and asking the questionnaires. Um, so we kind of like the, those resources have been mobilized. It's it's kind of like we're at war in many ways. You know, it's just everyone's just doing what they need to do. This is like in crisis mode. Um, but it, it's it's going. I think it's it's going as well as could be expected. Um, you know, sure. we're, we're trying our best to to plan for a surge. Um, you know, and, and we haven't yet seen that. Um, and we're expected to get that surge in, in the first week of May, at least in the Hartford area. So. Well, yes. Uh, you know, we can say thank you. That's uh, pretty <laughs> incredible what you guys are doing. There's like a definite sounds like there's a degree of improvisation, totally unlike fish improvisation. People's uh <laughs> people's lives yeah. are on the line but no it's uh it's incredibly yeah. impressive i know that people at hartford hospital they're in good hands because i know that uh you care extremely deeply about what you do and you've uh always been a very very good friend to me so you know thanks for coming on and yeah my thanks pleasure. for coming on and talking about this hey it's my pleasure i mean i love the podcast and I, and you guys are great so i'm happy to be back I want to I want to ask you before we jump into the jam, you know, we hear cuz I want to give you something fun to talk about here, yeah. not just uh, you know, <laughs> you're, you're of course. everything happening here. Um, but I think, you know, what what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis is unique compared to what most of us are seeing and most of us this is removed uh, if we're doing things that we're supposed to be doing, we're staying home and so we're not seeing this and we're not dealing with this head on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from the advice that we get from both the news media as well as medical professionals is 
staying at home is the best thing that we can possibly do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that you have have seen in your experience over the last month dealing with this um, that you think would be good ca- good precaution, good advice, anything that we're missing as a larger society? You know, I think nothing other than probably what you've already heard a bunch of times. Um, you know, obviously good hand hygiene. That's the biggest thing. Um, the, the nice thing about COVID is that it actually is very easy to kill, believe it or not. Um, okay. soap, and, soap and water kills it very easily. Typical alcohol-based Purell kills it. So as long as you just are conscientious about that, you usually you're 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 pretty good. The um you know there are other diseases, other viruses that are much or you know things that are harder, much harder to kill. Um, so uh, there's that, and then I think now really it's been showing like and and uh, to wear a mask when you go out. Um, just mainly to as a public health thing. It's not so much to protect you as much as it is to protect others. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of just an extension of the social distancing because as you, sure. every time you breathe and talk and you know you spit a little bit and and that's where it potentially can aerosolize and you know people theoretically can be asymptomatic transmitters for up to two weeks. So that's the scariest part of this is that you may have no symptoms at all and be very contagious. Um, and uh, I mean, I think, you know, and, and the social distancing is definitely important and it's working and it's, it's hard. It's, it's definitely um, not an easy thing to do, but, um, and it's mainly just to kind of make sure that we don't overwhelm the the resources that we have. I mean, in Italy, um, you may have heard the stories, but like it, it was, it got really, really bad. And, and in, in right. the beginning in Italy, they really were not being very cautious about it with their, their PPE. And they, they really had to, um, triage patients lives. Um, you know, and the, if the, more or less, if you were over 80 and you needed a ventilator, they would just kind of send you home to die. Um, right. and we're hoping not to have to do that, but there are contingency plans in place you know, in case we do get a surge and we have to start triaging. So, um, it, it, it's a scary, it's, it's scary, but, um, everyone in, is taking it seriously. And I, and I think, you know, that, um, that people, uh, at least where I work, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're doing the right thing. Um, Certainly our audience, I think everybody who listens smart enough to listen to beyond the pond is taking it seriously. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. This is a very smart group that listens yeah. to this podcast. Yeah, if you're not taking it seriously, you're not listening to this podcast, so it's okay. <laughs> yes. Well, Kevin, I want to extend a uh, bit of gratitude for you for the work that you're doing. Uh, it's really... It's amazing you're at the precipice of, you know, altering people's lives in a really important manner. Um, and, you know, I think even without coronavirus, obviously the work that you're doing is really important. And, uh, it's, it's amazing, uh, uh, to be able to talk with you, to hear from you, uh, during this whole period. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. And, um, my thoughts are out with you, out with your family right now, as you're going through all this. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's not, not every, there's not every day that an anesthesiologist becomes like a very, uh, uh, you know, popular, profession or or, or, or or the one of the most popular people is a virologist you know dr right. uh, fauci <laughs> so right right absolutely. it's kind of like a a nerd um moment of time or 15 minutes of fame i guess i could say <laughs> <laughs>
As two middle-aged dads who ran a fish podcast, Dave and myself are both well-bearded men. And because of that, we're constantly on the lookout for great products to groom and trim our beards. And that's why we are so thankful in this trying time for a company like Harry's. Harry's knows that now is not the time to overpay for razors at the drugstore. Harry's knows that sometimes it's better to stay inside. That's why they ship razors and gel and product directly to you so you can experience the quality of a Harry's shave in just a few days from the convenience of your own home. So we encourage all of our listeners to join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your special trier offer by going to harrys.com slash BTP. That's harrys.com slash BTP. So Harry's is really a return to the essential. You get quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just $2 per blade. They cut out the middleman, they manufacture their blades in their German blade factory that's been honing precision blades for a century, which means you get incredibly high quality blades at factory direct prices. It's super convenient because the blade refills are delivered directly to your door on your schedule with or without a subscription and you can feel really good about your purchase because they have a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know. They'll give you a full refund. And 1% of the proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations that are devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans. And I'll just say that um, my beard's gotten a bit unruly in quarantine. But no matter what, I refuse to have a neck beard. I'm not that lazy. <laughs> I cannot do my neck beard. I gotta have lines. I use Harry's to keep those lines intact. The rest of it gets kind of bushy, but there's gonna be uh, there's a line where the pair will not go, and that's what I'm using Harry's for. Absolutely. So listeners of Beyond the Pond can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com/btp. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip. Five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. It's a fantastic deal from a fantastic company that can help us out in these difficult times. So go to harrys.com slash BTP to start shaving better today. Why don't we jump into uh, something fun for you? Get your get your mind off of this and uh, jump good. into uh, the jam that we are covering for this episode. Which, um, if you looked at your cell phone prior to this starting, you would know um, is the backwards down the number line from Saratoga Springs, New York, SPAC, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, on August sixteenth. 2009 um before we jump into it were either of you guys at this show we were both at the show two days earlier in hartford connecticut yes that hartford was, was was an amazing uh-huh. show uh oh yeah i was in south korea at the time and uh i got every show the morning after and i remember waking up and seeing the set list roll in at like seven o'clock in the morning in korea and being like what the fuck 
what the fuck <laughs> just like blowing up but this was the tour closer and um let's jump into it here so why are we talking about the backwards down the number line from SPAC on August 16th, 2009? Well, on the final night of the 2009 summer tour, Fish opened set two with their unofficial reunion track and took it for a ride that, while they'd experiment on, experimented on it before and since, had never quite and has never quite replicated the abstract brilliance of this particular performance. While the tinniness and the whammy pedal that define much of the band's 2009-2010 sound is ever-present here, about 12 minutes into the jam, they hook up in this very profound way that recalls the best of the band's improvisational past, even when it was clear that it was something of a stepping stone. Notably, it's when Trey moves from abstract whammy-led uh, leads into harsh rhythmic strums that the jam takes off, which foreshadows a pattern that will make Fish 3.0 jams truly memorable. Trey focusing on rhythmic playing in a manner that showcases active listening and engagement with his bandmates usually leads to good things. Yeah, I'd say this is a definition of a very good jam. It won't blow you away. It almost kind of reminds you of something that might have been played in like the first two nights of the Baker's Dozen. You get kind of that, oh, this is kind of cool. They don't usually go that route. Recognition. I mean, that said, it's still a top five version of Backwards Down the Number Line, but it's still uh, it's still August 2009. It is, and I would say more than anything, you know, following this summer of returns to their favorite haunts, playing shows that fared between Outright Bad, Alpine Night One, anybody, I was there, to Moderately Good, the daring show I actually quite like, uh, to shockingly great Gorge, Hartford immediately come to mind that one of their best jams of the summer came in the song that just two years earlier was the springboard to the band's reunion was a symbolic moment as they continued this comeback towards what was then an undefinable date but would soon be recognized as august 31st 2012 um that's when everything changed that was the moment uh kevin what are your thoughts on this jam and i, w- I will put you on the spot uh in number line uh, as a whole song, as a complete piece, as a complete idea. Well, it's funny because um, this is a song that you know I'm usually listening to as on the as I head to the bathroom for a break or trying to get my <laughs> <laughs> to beat the crowds. But quite honestly, I secretly love this song because um, yeah. you know it's one of the few songs I can play that my wife likes um, and my kids love it too especially the studio version um, and so you know it's because my wife is one of those she she really hates fish and um, so it's nice when I can find a song that she's like oh I like this song um, but um, and the other thing is like this is a uh, kind of a you know this song's kind of like a song about nostalgia you know for the band right. and um you know, for me, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for that too. And you know, and, and I and I apologize for getting cheesy on this, but uh, you know, in true Trey fashion, I guess I'll I'll go in as cheesy as he is. Um, <laughs> you know, like Fish has been, you know, Fish has been the constant throughout my life. You know, I've been touring since '95, mostly with Dave and our and our buddy Aaron Glick. Um, and as like you know, our lives have gone through so many changes. The one constant that we have is Fish, and it always right. brings us joy. Always, you know brings me with like two of my closest friends and and reunites me with a whole bunch of other people too and um you know 
this is kind of the lyrics of the song kind of reminds me of my friendship with Dave and Aaron. Um, you know, we were friends as we were seven years old. And so it's like, you know, I think of them when I listen to the song. Um, but so when I listened to this song in particular, I was very impressed. And the first thing I have to say is that so I, I listened to this on re-listen and it was a taper version. So it sounded like, you know, like a, a really good version of like a. Um, you know, one of those those tapes that we used to get in the 90s. Right. Um, so, like, for me, it, it really just brought me back that quality, that kind of, like, diminished quality um, of, like, when I was driving around in my car with Dave and, and some of my other friends going to different uh, BBYO events hmm. in the hopes of, like, hooking up with girls or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Good times. And so it's just, it, it's like that kind of just set me back. And, you know, just interestingly enough, I noticed this is, Beyond the Poem, episode number 96, and 96 was the year I graduated high school. So it's like, this is very nostalgic for me. But um, this this song in particular, this version, it was very surprising to me. Like, I really, you know, obviously you don't expect them to jam like they do in this. To me, it reminded me a lot of, like, Fish 1.0. Um, like, that type of, uh, like ethereal spacey jam you almost like totally. stop remembering like what song you're in and but they made it sound so good and you're wondering like oh my god are they gonna lose it but then they don't they bring it back together like they always do so I, and it's like you don't expect that on a number line and i was just really impressed and so it's like that combined with the quality it just brought back a lot of memories and you know i i, I love this i thought this was great well i i know what you mean in terms of like that spaciness the 1.0 quality and to that point i, I remember when this jam happened there was a big exclamation within the community about, okay, Numberline is now a jam vehicle, but also there were so few 20-minute jams in summer 2009. Here we have a just barely 20-minute long jam. Um, and I, I don't remember going back to it as much in the immediate aftermath of that because I felt like there were, at the time, better jams. I remember coming back to this, though, like five years later, and listening to it being like, holy shit, Fish 2009 played this? Because you're right, it has that like spaciness that you just didn't expect from that era that you kind of got lost in, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So let's dive into here uh, the best versions of Numberline. This is something we love to do whenever we talk about a big uh, song uh, that, we're, that we're, we're featuring for this episode. So kind of marching through here... Um, I've got from the first really quality number line is July 31st, 2009 from Red Rocks, which is gives you your first hints of number line jamming uh, late in a really fantastic set two. Uh, August 8th, about a week later from The Gorge. This kind of further pushes Numberline's theme uh, from what you had at Red Rocks and a very clear indication that they're that they're going to jam this song. Um, and then rounding out that summer tour, uh, aside from this version, obviously, from SPAC, uh, August 11th, 2009 from Bridgeview, Illinois, which is like 10 minutes down the road from my parents' house. And it's the weirdest thing that they've Fish has played two shows there. Uh, this is a very groove-driven jam that highlights a much maligned show. But of note, this number line goes into the first Karini of 3.0, which is a really important moment in a lot of ways because Karini was a kind of throwaway gag song that had a couple really good moments in 1.0, a couple weird moments in 2.0. Didn't really seem to fit, even though kind of should have fit in the 2.0 sound but has become one of the most reliable jam vehicles of 3.0 so then we got uh october 31st 2009 the halloween show 
Backwards on the number line opens up the third set following the performance of Exile on Main Street. It's a very symbolic moment. It's a huge like 13 minute type one jam that stays very contained. Goes right into Fluffhead. Like I said, this opens set three and it goes into the song of 2009. So it's a very symbolic moment in a lot of cases. Absolutely. So following up on that, we're getting the summer of 2010. You got uh, June 12th of 2010. What are the better type 2 jam versions of Number Line? It gets kind of sinister, a little some darkness from Trey. Got August 17th of 2010. This was uh, night one of Jones Beach. Brian's favorite version. Also, I think I love my this. favorite. I think this is probably my favorite version of uh, the song. I was not at this night. I was at the next night, August 18th, which was a painfully boring show. Yes. Except this is the famous show with the Jones Beach Jumper. I guess a guy... Uh, Literally had too much fun, jumped from one tier to the next tier, and somehow didn't really get hurt. But I remember seeing helicopters, that was kind of crazy. And then, <clears throat> next going forward to the next year, of, uh, May 28, 2011, from Bethel, kind of similar to August 17, 2010. This is definitely one of the uh, best pre 831 12 3.0 shows. Great number line, excellent show. And you're getting into the really good stuff. You got October 25th, 2013, night one of Worcester. Really good type one version in a fantastic fall 2013 show. And we just got two more we got listed here. Uh, July 16th, 2014. Very good rhythm guitar on the part of Trey. And then finally, July 28th, 2017. Is that, uh, is that Double Chocolate? Double Chocolate night. They played in right. set two and... I sat behind the stage that night and I remember watching Trey with his head bobbing and every single person as far as you could see on the floor had a shit eating grin and was dancing and I realized all of you are liars, you all love number line, you just don't want to admit it. That might have been, it's not my favorite second set of um, Baker's Dozen, but it might have been the happiest second set. <laughs> it's... Some of the happiest I've ever been it's like uh, at a fish show. A happy, my God, there's so much happy in that set. I mean, you've got a China Rider, Chalk Dust Torture, You Sexy Thing, They're Rock and Roll is in there. Like everything, like, Have Mercy is played just like, like anything in the Baker's Dozen. You're like, oh, of course that song was played. Right. Um, so stepping back here really quickly, we wanted to talk about the show on August 16th as well as the larger run. And we also kind of want to highlight SPAC through the years because it's a really notable venue for the band. Um, this show, August 16th, it opens with the first Llama of 3.0. Uh, it's your first since June 23rd, 2004, which was 39 shows. It's kind of the weird thing when you look at the stats of this era is all these songs hadn't been played in five, six, sometimes, you know, seven years, maybe longer. But they, it's like under 100 show gap um the first set kind of unfolds in a very typical recital set manner that was the norm in early 3.0 and set two has a lot more flow beginning with the number line jam the rock and roll and then you get the first harpua since july 29th 2003 from burgettstown which again this was only 60 shows and it probably is the worst harpua ever yeah it's almost like they felt pressure to play it because it was the tour closer, 
You can hear bros chanting for it before number line. I mean, it's kind of a dumb Jimmy story. And I mean, Fishman singing a bad Katy Perry song badly, it's just uh, kind of like Spinal Tap, the fine line between stupid and clever. Right. This is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Like, you guys talk about going to the Hartford show. You know, yeah. the, the, the way shtick. that they. Yeah, I mean, the way that they closed out this tour, it's so wild. They go from Darien, New York, to Hartford, Connecticut, to Meriwether Post, to SPAC, all in four days. That's a weird One, route to go from Hartford down to Maryland, back up to Saratoga Springs. Yeah, it's bizarre. I, I mean, the band must have been exhausted by the time they got to SPAC. And I feel like they weren't sound checking until like late in the day. But you you do Hartford and SPAC, which is a pretty easy drive. I've done that. Um, you're getting yourself a Forbin's Mockingbird, a Psycho Killer, an Iculus, and Harpua in three days. It's kind of wild. Yeah, the stick at Hartford was actually like legitimately funny. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's ranting about you crazy kids don't read a book. All your your DVDs and your cell phones and Kevin, was that your first show back in 3.0, or had you seen shows in June? I think that was because uh, 2000. Yeah, I think that was the first one since 2004. Yeah. Okay. We saw the we saw the uh, Dave and I went to the ones in Brooklyn. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Do you have any recollections of your first show of 3.0, or of kind of the experience of seeing fish again and obviously seeing such an incredible show um well it was just uh i don't know i, I always ha- it's hard for me to remember shows because i'm not i don't have the memory that like you and dave do of the shows but i just remember loving that one and it's one of the shows i listen to frequently yeah um you know i i'm i'm a sucker for a harpua I mean, I think a lot of people are, but like, yeah. I really, I love fish storytelling in general. Like I've been, you know, one of my dreams is to hear a game hen show. I know a lot of people are too, but like, I've always been just, I love their storytelling. So, um, you know, hearing a harpua was, was great. Um, and it was, and it was good too. And, and Iculus too is, is always fun to hear. We didn't get a harpua um, with that show, Kev. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Mocking for <laughs> Mockingbird, Scratch that. Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. No, you're clear. Thanks. I'm looking at it right now at the set list. Like, oh yeah, you're right. It's not there. <laughs> I know. I think I was. I think I was thinking of the uh, Baker's Dozen one with the Jimmy Knight. Were you? Know? you were you at yeah. Jimmy's night? I was at Jimmy's night. I oh, was too. That was. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd gotten a Foreman's Mockingbird for the first time just two years prior, and yeah. I remember when they started it at Jimmy's night. I. I'm I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I'm going to. I, I was slightly disappointed because I was like, "There's no way they're playing Foreman's Mockingbird and Harpua." <laughs> it was perfectly yeah. set up for Harpua. I've never seen right. Harpua, and then yeah. I've always felt like that drowned a song I heard the ocean sing. I mean, that was like the band was playing right to me. I felt like like that's my wheelhouse of music, and mm. uh, then Harpua comes out right yeah. after that, and I. I'd always just wanted to hear that jam fading down and the it's just the best. Um, it really is. So, you know, getting back to this show here, August 16th, 2009, I think Dave and I would note it's a fine show. You know, Yem closes it out like it always seemed to in 2009. The number line is really the highlight here, and it's what yeah. 
really brought us back. But we wanted to talk really quickly here about SPAC because SPAC is a really fascinating venue uh, for fish. It's seen a lot of really great shows over the years. Um, it's seen some subpar shows, some subpar runs. But for the most part, when fish arrives at Saratoga, it really feels like a hometown show in a lot of cases for them. Um, and so we wanted to give you guys kind of a quick rundown of some of our favorite moments with years. So kicking it off June 26, 1995, one of my first tapes I received in the summer of 2001. This has a wild down with disease, a crazy type two free and the whole set list itself. It's worth listening to in full. It's on the app. Um, jumping ahead nine years because fish did not play Saratoga believe at all after this show from 1995 until 2.0 huh, i never thought about uh, that yeah just wow. never showed up on the touring dock um you've got father's day weekend 2004 the last great shows of 2004 where the band walked off stage apparently on the second night and said man if we played like that we'll never break up uh june 19th you've got walls of the cave song i heard the ocean sing and an all caps piper and June 20th, you've got a Great Waves and Drown in Set 1, as well as the last four songs set two to date. Don't come at me with your 1230-19 stuff. Uh, set two's got Seven Below, Into Ghost, Into Twist, Into Will You Enjoy Myself. Um, and then wrapping things up before we jump into 3.0, just to note it here, August 14th, 2007, Really special moment. If you have never heard this or watched this, it's on YouTube. Trey's first public performance since he got out of rehab. He comes out on stage during Lionheart Graves with the Dave Matthews Band and gives like one of the most tug at the heartstrings guitar solos I've ever heard in my entire life. Like the band is just egging him on and he's just going ever so slowly, not trying to show off. And then he finally kind of gets it from the crowd and just delivers this really emotional, really joyful guitar solo that is one of my favorite things he's ever played. I'm not sure I've ever heard that. And Lion or Graves is one of the Dave Matthews Band songs I actually don't dislike. If you want out. to see grown men cry, watch that. It is it is a tearjerker. I think uh, it's one of our, our close friend Ben Greenfield's favorite Trey moments ever. Really? Why can't believe that we were lying in our graves? Right. <laughs> June 19th, 2010. That's uh, the one where also Saratoga, obviously, Tweezer Reprise opens the show and it ends the show. There's a great rock and roll at that show. I think that was around, um, that was the jokey summer of Tweezer Reprise, like the Hartford show where they played it like twice in a row. Yep, yep. Think, they right? play, play it twice in the encore and then. They open up the next night with it and close that night with it as well. Right. So we get in July 6th of 2012. This was the first of three straight three-night 4th of July weekend runs. Very good show. One of the best half of a very solid tour. Big Sneaking Sally into Ghost. I think um, Kevin and I were at 7-7-2012, which is a pretty unremarkable show, except they play Blister in the Sun a lot. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the third night, uh, the second night of that run. Jumping ahead a year to July 5th, 2013. Me and Kevin were at this one. Excellent set two with 
Light Drown and the debut of the, uh, the Apples and Stereo song, Energy. Also, this is my first Mango song I think I got at, at, at this show. No way. Yeah. Only uh, downside of this show, there was like a wook chick in front of me who had her dog like under the seat and the dog just got covered in like beer and glow sticks and I was really uh, sad for that. Set two of this show is really, really good. <clears throat> oh, it's great. Light gets bonkers. Great show. 46 days, steam like just like slows down into a massive groove. Uh, Drown starts up like deep in the fourth quarter. It's a really bizarre but well-constructed set list. I love it. Uh, July 6th, next night, 2013, huge put open and melt to close out set one. Very uh, nice, fast-paced kind of major key Carini to start the second set. Also, they play Architect. I do like Architect. I don't know how you feel about Architect. I love Architect. Um, Is this the breaking point in the pod? Yeah. <laughs> I um, love Architect. I'm sorry. The drums, man. Oh, I fucking love it. Reconvene, uh, reconnect. I Some, love it so much. The Architect, because it was so much better. So much better. Dude, it opens up a great Gord show uh, just like three weeks later. Um, so... Jumping into 2014, uh, July 4th, 2014, I was at this show. This was my first uh, SPAC show in the balcony. I don't know if you guys have ever been in the balcony inside of the... Holy shit, man. Like when they start jamming, it just like starts shaking and going up and down. It's so cool. Yeah, during Um, the... um, We saw Sabotage Encore, I think, on uh, July 7th, 2012, the balcony. Um. Two years later, they did another. So they did uh, 2012, 13, 14, and 16. These uh, three-night Fourth of July-esque runs. Uh, July 1st, they played a p- massive Choctaw's Torture in one of the better shows of 2016, summer 2016. Two nights later, they played this really fantastic MoMA dance in a bad show in what I would call a bad tour overall. I did not like summer 2016. It's probably the only tour of 3.0 aside from maybe june 2011 where i just actively uh, kind of avoid it good tour closer um, otherwise i agree very good tour closer that's a really good point yeah, yeah chula vista's great chula vista is awesome i actually i really like the disease from hartford um i'm guessing you guys or at least yeah. kevin you were probably at that no we were yeah we were both there i dug that um Finishing things up here, July 2nd, 2019. You had a really fun overall show with a very killer Down With Disease and Sense and Subtle Sounds. And then July 3rd, 2019, which is a bizarre show. It's I, I call it a 1994 fish set told through 2019. It works and it doesn't all at once. They I had every a song of songs, right? Yeah, and everything segues really like... It, it, it almost doesn't make sense, but everything segues perfectly into each other. That was a weird and, show. And then it, but everything like, you think it's going to jam and then it doesn't jam. It's it's really wild. No, I was just going to say, wrapping up this section, we're just going to do a brief overview of uh, some 2009 fish, which we really haven't talked very much about Beyond the Pond. Yeah, we part of the reason we wanted to do this uh, this jam here is 2009 is really underrepresented in kind of the larger fan community. It's seen as this uh you know return year of sorts uh doesn't have the highlights of later 3.0 fish and um 
a lot of people kind of scoff at it. And I, it's understandable to a certain degree, but there's some great underrated gems within the year. Um, so following Fish's three-night return at Hampton Coliseum in March of 2009, they went ahead and conducted their first tour in five years in similar fashion to their last, split in half with a five-week break in between. In hindsight, this was probably the best decision, but the June run's flaws shine with even more clarity as a result of this approach and the road the band had to climb to return to the brilliance of uh, 1.0 and 2003 looked all the more drastic at the time. Save for Camden and Alpine Night 2, highlights in June 2009 are very few and far between as the band's focus was on reconnecting with themselves, each other, and their fan base. I have to say, it must have been, it must have seemed, you know, it was to me as a fan, but as a band member, it must have seemed like this daunting task for them at the time. Um, I know that it did as a listener, but the notion that we'd ever get anything resembling a storage jam or fall 2013 or Magnaball or the Baker's Dozen, for Christ's sake, or Casvote Vox in June 2009 was pretty much out of the realm of possibilities. Yeah, I attended, um, I went to, let's see, in addition to the Hartford show, I saw Jones Beach night one, which I believe was the first night, I think they opened the tour at Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. And then they had, um, right, the first night of Jones Beach, which that kind of felt like a bit of a dress rehearsal. I got to see if I could. There was a mic screw with Simple in the second set, but it was kind of sloppy, a little bit listless, but, you know, they really, you can get by on the, we're just happy to have them back energy for a while. And um, Fish also believed that the path to salvation in 2009 was was gracing the fan base with 12-minute versions of rock and roll or drowned almost every night. Right. This is uh, <laughs> why uh, when you <laughs> you look at it on live Fish, you see rock and roll for like four and a half minutes, and it'll be like Cincinnati Jam, Darien Lake Jam, because uh, because of uh, I guess that's like royalty considerations. Cause or it was. I don't know what's changed, but none of the none of the covers are ever labeled as jams at this point in time. Like Cross Out and Painless goes deep, and they never say Baker's Dozen Jam, Phil Jam, something like that. <laughs> Can you imagine how many MSG jams they would yeah. have had if they capped that on in the Baker's Dozen? There have been like eight of them. Drowned um, jam. <laughs> so something changed. When they stepped back for a few weeks, uh, I saw Alpine that summer. And Alpine Night 2 was one of my favorite nights I've ever seen fish, uh, even though I don't really go back and listen to the show. It was just the first time where it was like, okay, okay. They, they're starting to feel it. Um, they go westward in late July, and they play a 12-show run of shows that traverse the American West before hopping back east for four one-off shows in the Northeast. Um, for all logistical as- issues associated with the tour, the band delivered more often than not with mostly well-crafted and truly interesting shows. Um, somehow, and we'll go through this here, their two-night stand at the Gorge would stand up to most shows from any other year in, two- in uh, 3.0. So, jumping into late summer 2009. Some of the highlights here. Uh, July 30th, the tour opener got a really nice melodic set one stash and a fat boy slim praise you version of ghost which is really good i highly recommend listening to it 
set uh, the next night, excuse me, July 31st, you've got a very torrid split open and melt in what was apparently a uh, mid-summer rainstorm at Red Rocks. Uh, a very, very fluid set too. Drowned into Cross and Painless, into Joy, Tweezer, one of the more interesting 2009 versions of Tweezer, uh, into Backwards on the Number Line, kind of aforementioned, we talked about how this was the first version that almost went out there. Uh, that goes into Fluffhead, which then segues directly into Piper. It's weird, like Fluffhead doesn't end, it goes right into Piper, which then a lot of jams at this time would go into, everyone would drop out and Paige would lead them into the next song. This goes into A Day in the Life. It's a really good second set if you haven't listened to it in some time. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, the next night, uh, August 1st, you get the first curtain with since Coventry, a really goofy set one where the band uh, is making um, sign language symbols at each other in place of talking about what the next song is. Uh, and then a really outstanding down with the Z's and kind of like what I was saying earlier, you get the first Esther since 1.0, but it's only like 92 shows earlier or something like that. Um, and then you get uh, August 2nd, uh, the last night of the Red Rocks run, a massive boogie on, and Bill Kreutzman joins the band for all of set two and plays uh, on a second drum set, which is really cool. Just going forward, August 5th, very, very good, underrated, underdiscussed Down With Disease. August 7th from The Gorge, Brian says this is the best show of 2009. It might be the best pre Fuck Your Face show ever because of the huge versions of Cellulite and Gin. I prefer uh, November 28, 2009 from Albany, but uh, you know, you can certainly make the argument for 8-7. Next night, August 8th, very good compliment to the previous night. Huge versions of uh, rock and roll. The number line to the Piper is very good. <clears throat> August 11th, you get your first number line uh, that kind of goes type 2. August 13th, old school show, holds up better than one would expect from this era with a huge drowned. August 14th, that's the Hartford show that uh, we talked about. Fan favorite, lots of bust outs, Forbin's Mockingbird, Crazy Iculus, Down at the G's with Ariba Jam. Um, they also did the Gordon Leo Kotke song, Middle of the Road, which I think I played a few times, kind of uh, wish they would have played that a bit more. And then uh, the next night, Mayweather the Post, a lot of people don't love this show. But it's got a really, really good 46 days. Yeah. Yeah. And so from here, you know, they close out the tour at SPAC. And we get basically two months off before they go to Festival 8, which is a truly earnest and special experience for all that were both listening, simulcasting from afar, as well as those who were there. Even if a lot of the music doesn't fully stand the test of time, although I would fight for the Piper and the Light. If you have not listened to those jams, they are fantastic. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, the gimmicks surrounding that festival, California is off the map, the whole website that they made and the countdown of where the hell the festival is going to be. Also, the website that they created where they put like 50 albums up and they killed them on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, huge, huge, fantastic moment from a fan base standpoint. All that stuff really held up as kind of fish being fish going into later 2009 you get a very solid fall tour uh, i personally prefer the august run from fall or from uh, 2009 and a high quality miami run closes out the first year back 
And whereas the previous return year, 2003, was filled with questions by year's end, the important thing at the end of 2009, and I think that it's part of the reason we wanted to focus on this backwards on the number line, is you have hope, optimism, and joy. Even if we realized at that point in time that the band would need far more time to become fish, I feel like everybody in the fan base at the end of 2009 was just so happy the band was back and really hopeful for the future. Did you guys share that? Yeah. I mean, also, I'll just say that I listened to uh, the Exile and Mainstream Festival set, you know, after it was done in 2009, maybe twice. And then I didn't listen to it again until um, when Curveball got canceled, me and Kevin and Aaron buddy we talked about the next day ended up going to Aaron's house and barbecuing in the backyard he's listening to the bunny I remember um they played the entire the fish radio played the entire exile set so it was bittersweet because I was loving hearing it again I forgot how good it was while eating uh hot dogs and sausages and drinking beer in my buddy's backyard we really should have been a curveball but you know Kevin yeah. You recall that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was our curveball shiva. We were all sitting. Yes. <laughs> in mourning for curveball, in mourning. all wearing black, and, we had covered up all the windows. Yes. And, many, we, and we even went fish Jews. We even went to another, uh, some of your friend's house uh, nearby where a bunch of other people were doing curveball shiva. So it was, we, yes. were, we were with, with our family during that time. Yes, that's right. That was Anthony Brizak's house, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still would have rather been a curveball. One big curveball shiver. I remember hearing the, uh, the my left toe into whipping post from uh, July twenty fifth, nineteen ninety nine. Mm. Several times, just listen to Fish Radio on loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on that note, let's do some thing that's not sad and mourning. Let's do something joyous. Let's listen to a segment of the backwards down the number line from August sixteenth. 2009 from the Saratoga Performing Arts Center.
If you're like me, things like music, running, and cooking all bring happiness and meaning. However, there are times where even the things you rely on for happiness are not enough to help you achieve your goals. The good news is, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp Online Counseling is a way for you to connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, and conveniently online environment. Schedule your own secure video or phone session, plus chat and text with your therapist at your own convenience. Everything you share is confidential, and licensed professional counselors are available with specializations in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem, among more. BetterHelp is available worldwide, and if you're not happy with your counselor at any time, you can request a new one at no additional charge. With over 3,000 licensed therapists, you can start communicating in under 24 hours with non-crisis counselors. Schedules can be set up weekly, over phone, or video, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. I've been using BetterHelp for the last few months, and I feel a strong sense of clarity, purpose, and understanding in speaking with my counselor. It's important to speak with a professional when you're feeling in need of communication and understanding. Beyond the Pond listeners get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp by using the discount code BTP. That's BTP. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash BTP. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash BTP. All right. So hoping that you guys enjoyed that segment of the 81609 SPAC number line. Big thank you as well to Kevin Finkel. Really happy that he was able to come on and talk with us. Fantastic dude, as you guys could hear. Um, And, uh, you know, these people that are on the front lines right now are absolute heroes. And uh, we were just very thankful to have him on here sharing in some of his own experience right now, as well as uh, some fun stuff, talking fish. So moving into the musical recommendation portion of the show, we wanted to focus on two main themes associated with fish in 2009. And the first of these is the big return. And we want to talk about artists who broke up very similarly to how fish was in 2004. Some of them thought that they were going to get back together. Some of them went on hiatus. Some of them never considered getting back together, but ended up doing so. Uh, we wanted to focus on kind of what that experience was like for artists to get back together after a prolonged period apart, especially big artists. And I'm going to focus on a band and two artists from within a band that I have never presented here on the, on beyond the pond. I don't know if we've ever actually featured this band, but um, we've talked about them in a lot of, in a lot of cases because um, they had a big impact on fish. And that is the velvet underground uh, most specifically Lou Reed and John Cale's uh, 1990 record songs for Drella. And I'm going to go ahead and play the song trouble with classicists. So Lou Reed and John Cale of the Velvet Underground had not spoken to each other in years 
when Andy Warhol died of a rut- following routine surgery in 1987. Uh, having been their artistic mentor, they connected again in his memorial service and were encouraged by friends to write a tribute piece for their friend. The resulting record, which was released in April of 1990, delayed only slightly due to Kale's words for the dying and reads New York, is a song cycle about Andy Warhol. Titled Songs for Drella, it references Warhol's nickname from his closest friends, a combination of Dracula and Cinderella, which makes perfect fucking sense. Uh, The song cycle focuses on Warhol's interpersonal relationships and experiences with both first-person perspectives, third-person narratives, and first-person commentaries from Reed and Kale. For the most part, the record is told in chronological order. So this record was performed in full for the first time in late November and early December of 1989. And this was the first collaborative project for the two since 1968's White Light, White Heat. Notably, by the end of the project, John Cale swore he'd never work with Reed again. And as a result, there was no tour in support of this album. A direct quote from John Cale. (laughs) I hate Lou. I really do. Of note, the two would ultimately play together again with their bandmates Sterling Morrison and Maureen Tucker in 1993 for a rendition of Heroin, the first and last full Velvet Underground review or reunion. So overall, this record, Songs for Drella, was received positively as this was a period when 60s nostalgia was in full, sp- full swing. Spin Magazine even called it one of the best 20 albums of 1990. Now, like I said, we're going to listen to the song Trouble with Classicist, which is one of five Kale songs on the record and seems to summarize the entire experience of Andy Warhol's artistic worldview and song. Um, I will admit the Velvet Underground are a really weird blind spot for me. Uh, I, of course, know Loaded front to back. I know that album really well. It's one of my favorite albums ever made, but I've never dived deeper in to this band in the same way I have with some of my other favorite classic rock groups. I'm however, continually fascinated by late eighties, early nineties, uh, classic rock revivals and artistic periods, both in their weirdness and their overall failures. So this was a really interesting sort of entry point for me in some ways, considering this reunion to fishes in 2009, I, I find myself thinking a lot about when artists age and health becomes a focus for them and the focus of life often overtakes the challenges of their own artistic pursuits and creative disagreements. And I think about how there's another path where the challenges of 2009 and especially 2011 are too much for fish to overcome and the inability for Trey to regain his mojo, the loss of a desire to keep pushing forward becomes too much for the band and we never experienced the brilliance of 2012 to 2015 and the aging sustained joy of 2017 to 2020. I am obviously, but you know, I'm so thankful that Fish was able to work through the challenges that they faced from basically 2000 to 2011. You know, obviously there were breaks in there, but you know, that whole period has a lot of what is actually happening? What's the point of this band? And we're able to rediscover their creative drive that's leading us to so much more music than we had ever expected. Now, perhaps there was no bringing the Velvet Underground into the 90s, 
there wasn't that with a lot of bands from the 1960s, but this is a, this is a really fantastic peek into what could have been in both the best and, uh, sometimes, you know, the worst ways. So we're going to go ahead and listen to probably my favorite track off this record, Trouble with Classicists off of Lou Reed and John Cale's 1990 record, Songs for Drella. The trouble with the classicist, he looks at a tree. That's all he sees, he paints a tree. Trouble with the classicist, he looks at the sky He doesn't ask why, he just paints the sky The trouble with an impressionist, he looks at a log He doesn't know who he is standing, staring at this log And surrealist memories are too amorphous and proud While those downtown macho painters are just alcoholic the trouble with the freshest There's a trouble with the freshest There's a trouble with the freshest There's a trouble with the freshest Personalities, they're too wrapped up in style. It's too personal, they're in love with their own guile. They're like illegal aliens trying to make a buck. They're driving gypsy cabs, but they're thinking like a truck. There's a trouble with the personalities. Okay, we uh, I certainly load the velvet underground. I enjoy songs for Drell and especially Blue Reason, New York album from 1989. It's one of his. Uh, I wouldn't say it's his. Best last record. Well, one of the better last records. I think like the last really solid Lou Reed album was probably Set the Twilight Reeling from 1996. That's a different podcast for a different day. Band I'm going to talk about here in terms of the big comeback is uh, one of my favorite bands I know I've talked about in this podcast before. That's Mission of Burma and their 2002 resumption album On Off On. Going to play the song following. Uh, sorry, the song's called Falling. So, I think this is the first time I've talked about this album. They like to say that they didn't have a reunion so much as they stopped and they just resumed. Mission to Burma got their start. They're a late 70s, early 80s art punk band out of Boston. Kind of credited with bringing a Cleveland-style punk rock. It got the band Rocket from the Tombs and the Dead Boys to the East Coast. Post-punk bass line, squalls of noise, shouted vocals, angry politics, kind of almost like an elevated version of the Stooges. Maybe even the Stooges cross aspects of Joy Division. Uh, if you hear Mission to Burma, it's difficult not to get excited about them. Of course, um, Matador Records head honcho Ger- uh, Gerard Cosloy as a teenager covered one of uh, the earliest gigs for his zine Conflict, thinking entitled it Art is a Hammer. Yes, he was uh, too young for the club. They snuck him in behind speaker cabinets. At least that's what I recall from reading um, Under the Pod, Jesse Jarno's fantastic book, Big Day Coming, about Yola Tango and Indie Rock. Lots of great Mission to Burma stuff in that book. So, 
They only, uh, in their heyday, put out one EP, Signals, Calls, and Marches, and then one full-length album, Verses, in 1982, before they had to call it quits because uh, guitarist Roger Miller's tinnitus had become a big problem, and he had to wear rifle range ear protectors on their once-thought-to-be final tour in 1983. So they kind of regrouped in 2002 out of nowhere with uh, two shows at New York City's Urban Plaza, and On Off On, which is a really good album. I mean, not good because they've been away for 19 years, but simply like a really good rock and roll album on its own that I don't think anybody had a right to expect. Some of the songs on the record, such as uh, Hunt Again and Dirt, they date back to the early 80s, and I think probably would have been on the next Mission to Burma record had they not called the whole thing off. But they still sound fresh and energized here. Um... I think actually Dirt appears on their 1985 uh, practically a bootleg live album, The Horrible Truth About Burma. Hunt Again is on one of the 17,000 crappy outtakes and B-sides collections that were assembled in the wake of their breakup. Believe me when I tell you that no band has more weird outtakes and shitty B-sides collections than Mission of Burma does. And, uh, and they weren't even finished. After uh, they reformed, they put out three more albums after On, Off, On. All very good. They continue to play great live shows, including a few where they played verses in full. And there was a free show I saw back in 2011 where um, they actually opened up for Wild Flag, being a short-lived uh, Carrie Brownstein, Janet Weiss, very Timothy band in a park in Brooklyn. And they actually proceeded to blow Wild Flag off the stage. I think uh, their final album was 2012's Very Good Unsound, but Miller's ear issues cropped up again, and I think they never quite announced it, but all signs at this point point to the band being kaput, which is fine. It was uh, still a hell of a run. So let's listen to Falling off of uh, On, Off, On, initially. I was falling Tallest building away, okay, away. And I felt the air rush flowing over me. And I could hear you calling far away, away. Rushing up to meet me Between the seconds Spin fire parts I could feel the even Every stream of air I could feel the rocky stay So jumping here into new album recommendations, 
Thankfully, there are still new albums being released, huh? Yeah. Release dates are getting pushed back. But uh, because of promotion, tour dates and whatnot, it's getting shaken up. But there are new records. There are still new records. There's still new music to discover. Um, and we want to present some of our favorite music that we have been listening to over the last couple of weeks. I am going to talk about a band that... If you know, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know already that the Necks are one of the most important bands to me. Uh, while I came to them late, 2017's Unfold was my intro. They provided a formative moment of awakening for me. The 2017 record in question came to my playlist out of mere curiosity. I read about this Australian improvisational band that experiments with length and tone. And here they reduce their single track records into four separate pieces of improvisation, thus providing a bit of accessibility within their larger approach. And I happened to listen just weeks before Dave and I recorded our very first Beyond the Pond episode. So timing, I remember that period in my life quite, quite clearly. Uh, Unfold from 2017 became one of my favorite records of that year and taught me an important lesson I'd honestly been ignorant of at the time. The best bands that jam are often not jam bands. While I'd long been disinterested in the white boy funk that defines so many modern day jam bands, I still loved the notion that anything could happen within deep improvisation and longed for bands who could provide, at least in part, what fish could albeit with a slightly different approach. In this sense, hearing the next was a revelation and has opened my eyes to countless other kind of velvet underground style inspired arty rock bands who also experiment with improv. Of note, there is a direct line in my mind from the next two bands like Garcia Peoples, Riley Walker, and Chris Forsyth. So a bit later in mid 2018, when we were 40 episodes deep, I covered their 2018 record, Body, which consisted of one track across 40 minutes and showcased deep, deep minimalism before exploding in much the same way that Camden 18's Down With Disease had. Enter 2020, three, the band's 21st album in over 30 years, and one that seems to focus on their most fascinating aspects within the overall mundane music that they love to explore three tracks each around 20 minutes each displaying the band's insistence on minimalism focus active listening and doing more with less than any current touring jam band could subtle shifts in tone pace sound are key here the goal isn't tension and release so much as passing time and the shifts that happen gradually and naturally the bass is comprised of phonetic drums, fittering by at increasing speeds, while the top of each track could not be more languid. It's a perfect microcosm of our current era and song. The speed of the world is spinning further and further out of control, while the larger rhythms of life move at their own pace, unconcerned with the larger needs of society. I love this record. I've listened to it multiple times since it came out. I cannot, cannot recommend this record enough. If there's anything that you learn about this podcast, it is to follow the next on Bandcamp as well as on Spotify so you know exactly when their records are coming out because they release 
fairly regularly. They do a pretty good output, and all of their records are worth listening to and are at least in some ways fascinating. Yeah, they were supposed to play New York, I believe, at the end of March. People here were extremely excited, but that ain't happening. Who knows when it's going to happen? It's a case for a lot of things, unfortunately. Yeah. But I have to listen to that record. It's been on my list for a while to dive into. I love the last album. I know there's... I really should listen to the next more. I know there's a lot of people I respect highly who love them. So, must get on that. But the album I'm going to talk about for new releases is a record that came out last week. Uh, the band's called Trace Mountains. The album's called Lost in the Country. Trace Mountains is the gnome du rock for Dave Benton. He's formerly known as uh, the singer for middling Brooklyn indie rockers Level Up, LVL Up, who uh, I never liked that much, but they don't exist. And um, Trace Mountains is better. This is uh, the second under album under the Trace Mountains name. Makes me kind of think he knew what he was doing when he wound down his old band. So kind of the sound here, it's kind of a delicious meeting of the minds between... Um, Kind of like Death Cab for Cutie style, early 2000s indie rock, and the epic sweep of War on Drugs. It actually kind of sounds a lot like the band Wild Pink, whose album Yoke in the Fur we very much loved on this podcast. Uh, in particular, Side A kind of hits all of the 80s classic rock signifiers that, frankly, we ride hard for on Beyond the Pond. I mean, the album's called Lost in the Country. And he does name check a deeper understanding on the title track. Clearly, he's heard the war on drugs before. <laughs> um, I haven't taken the side B quite as much yet as it kind of threatens to overdose the levels of cute that I uh, didn't like in his prior band. In particular, the one song called Benji, which, well, it's only two minutes. You can skip it, but uh, kind of crosses the line a bit on that one. But uh, when the album's good... Like the title track, the first song, Rock and Roll, Absurdity, Dog Country, it's really good. And something that anybody who listens to this podcast on a regular basis will absolutely want to check out. It's uh, Lost in the Country by Trace Mountains. All right. So for segment two, you know, we talked so much in the first segment about uh fish in 2009 and what that year really meant for the band and what it's like looking back on 2009 at this point and kind of what the lasting impact of that year was on 3.0 as a complete era. And even if you look before them, like I feel like a lot of people re rediscovered 2.0 in a very different way hearing 2009 fish than they ever would have if the band had come back differently. But it got us all thinking about 2009 in general. Uh, I was, I turned 24 in March of 2009. Um, and it feels like 20 years ago <laughs> in a lot of cases. Um, and the album I'm going to talk about here is an album that was just a huge, huge impact for me, uh, as a listener at this time. And, you know, from a lifestyle standpoint. So, um, 2009, it was a real game changer year for me in a lot of ways. Uh, I started it in a relationship that was going nowhere. I was waiting tables. I was living at home and kind of this like in between of a lot of things. And I ended it on a beach on an Island off the coast of Thailand 
with the woman that I would end up marrying halfway through an important year living in South Korea. It was like as much of a total change in my life in one year as pretty much any other has ever been. Uh, in between, I discovered probably more music per capita than I ever had before and was really the basis for the way that I've been approaching listening to and discovering music ever since and was probably the point where everything started for me to want to start a music-based podcast. Uh, much of this started with hearing Animal Collective's Meriwether Post Pavilion one random Sunday morning in early January and feeling as though my brain cracked open. Perhaps it was the call out to fish. Maybe it was where my head was at, but this music spoke right to me and ultimately destroyed me. Kind of a side note, we're talking here about um, a different album from 2009, Grizzly Bear's Vecatimus. It's really kind of wild to think about how songs like My Girls and Two Weeks in this era, Kids as well, you think about these like really bizarre takes on the pop rock song and they were also insanely earwormy and think that just 10 years ago, a song like this could become like the biggest song on earth from an just like a small indie rock band. And I kind of think in a sense like that era is just completely gone now. This was also the point in my life where I started reading Pitchfork Daily and I just had rejoined Fantasy Tour in anticipation of Fish's return and discovered that throughout the hiatus, the site had blossomed into this fantastic resource for super weird and lesser known music. I bought an external hard drive, got a mega upload account. You remember him? Kim.com. <laughs> and immediately filled a terabyte of music. At some point during the year, I came across Grizzly Bear and the album Yellow House and was just floored. It was so cavernous and ancient, and there's this striving for perfection that pushed me to think harder about music. It sounded equally like a fall hike in the middle of nowhere, as well as a cup of coffee in bustling New York City. And when I caught word of a follow-up coming in May, it immediately became my most anticipated album of the year. It came out right around the time I was in Boston seeing Fish, my longtime girlfriend for the first time in years. Every time I hear it, I'm taken back to springtime in Boston, being 24, falling in love, becoming friends with my future brother-in-law, and seeing Fish smile at me for the first time since I'd started seeing them in 2003. Unquestionably, Vectimist is Grizzly Bear's best record. That said, I still really love Yellow House. I fell hard for Painted Ruins in 2017 and found Shields to be a massive grower of a record. That said, nowhere else are Edrost and Daniel Rossin's skills as songwriters more, more clear. Nowhere else do they literally sound like they're playing in an aging farmhouse on the Atlantic coast in late fall. Now, there is some, uh, some debate over the strength of the middle of the record. I would argue it's a record that has to be played in full no matter what. When listening in full, the wandering left turns in the middle in the middle of the, of the record make more sense and are true connecting pieces between the album's opener, Southern Point, and the closing track, Foreground. That said, at 12 songs and nearly an hour runtime, it is a commitment and one that I think less uh, one that I think less people made. And it's kind of reflected in their overall ability to play early evening festival slots. They did, however, score big budget advertising payouts, embrace that 
early 2010s millennial Instagram life and just take about five years off because there's a reason that this is the last of the era of indie rock bands to truly make it. I think that they try, they made people try too hard and record companies were less adapt to take chances on indie rock bands after this. My favorite tracks of the record though, are the opener, the massive single two weeks, which is about as intelligent a song featured in a Super Bowl ad ever could be the song. All we ask cheerleader Dory, while you wait for the others and the closer foreground, which is just beautiful and simplistic. We are going to play the song while you wait for the others by Daniel Rawson, easily my favorite member of Grizzly Bear and one of the best songwriters in the last two decades. This song is perfect Rawson. It's sinister and skeptical. It's assuming the worst while seeing the beautiful tragedy in that. And while his lyrics and guitar up front, below the surface, you hear what really makes Grizzly Bear tick this democratic, hardworking approach to the entire band. Like what Fish was working to become again in 2009, this is a band that is actively listening to each other, pushing each other, and working tirelessly to challenge you through pop music. So we're going to go ahead, we're going to listen to While You Wait for the Others, my 2009 review off of Grizzly Bear's Vecatimist. While you wait for the others Make it all worthwhile All your useless pretensions Are weighing on my time You could beg for forgiveness As long as you lie Just wait out the evening You'll only leave me dry Yes, you'll only Love that record. Uh, have you ever heard the Michael McDonald version of that song? Why you wait for the others? No. It's a cover. Yeah. Google it. Um, it's the weirdest thing. It's like Michael McDonald singing "Why You Wait for the Others." It almost sounds like over like the like original tracks. No way. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I have to hear this. It's out there. Yeah, no, it's great. He, he sounds like he's like, while you wait for the <laughs> I feel it's, like his voice would fit it really well, but also like in an overly dramatic way. Yeah, it's, I don't know how he hooked up with Grizzly Bear, but it, it's totally weird and great. So the band I'm going to talk about here uh, put out a fantastic record in 2009 where they've got nothing to do with Grizzly Bear. 
This is the Manic Street Preachers, and they put out an album in 09 called Journal for Plague Lovers. And the song we're going to play is uh, from my favorite song on the record. She bathed herself in a bath of bleach. And um, I don't think I've ever told the story of uh, the band member Richie Edwards on Beyond the Pond before, which I'm kind of surprised because I love telling the story. But for the Manic Street Preachers, they are uh, a Welsh alternative rock band. I think they formed in 1986 officially, consisting of James Dean Brayfield on guitar and vocals, Nicky Wire on bass guitar, Sean Moore on drums, and Richie Edwards on rhythm guitar, and he wrote the lyrics. Well, their first album came out in 1992 called Generation Terrorists. They said it was the greatest rock album ever, and if it didn't sell more copies and Appetite for Destruction, they would break up. Neither of these things happened, but it, uh, it did establish them as kind of like rabble-rousers who are very much in on the joke of establishing their legend and, you know, weren't afraid to talk themselves up and talk to uh, the British music tabloids, which there are many. And I guess at this time... Their sound could kind of best be described as punk-leaning, like glam rock. I know uh, they were fond of wearing makeup on stage. But uh, the elegant vocals of James Dean Brayfield are, you know, really too good and or crisp for punk rock. So they've really kind of always been an ambitious arena rock band. But the album, which really established them as ambitious, somewhat unusual, and extremely severe, was uh, their third album, 1994's The Holy Bible, which I think is a friend of the pod, Ryan Nichols. That's his favorite album ever. And it was very much informed by Richie Edwards' love and worship of Nirvana's In Utero, which also uh, came out around that time. I love this album, which, uh, but it's also very hard to listen to because it's so fucking bleak. It's got lyrics about the Holocaust, anorexia, all kinds of suffering, gun control in America, you name it, Richie Edwards is writing about it. I mean, part of the album actually kind of makes me nauseous, and they will have this thing where they like interweaving um, like sound clips from movies and newsreels to kind of give it like a more uh, queasy cinematic effect. I know there's uh, some footage of them from 1994 at the Glastonbury Festival, like rocking out on stage in balaclavas, looking scary. It was very cool. So with Richie Edwards, in 1995, he literally disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, kind of went without a trace. He was only legally declared dead in 2008. Um, but not before the thing he did most famous, that he became most famous for, literally carved the phrase for real, the number four real, into his arm with a knife show uh, a smarmy new musical express journalist so i think it was actually um steve lamock who now is a very uh, famous dj on um the uk's radio one that the manic street preachers were indeed for real and he really earned the title the british kurt cobain but the manic street preachers they kept going on as a trio they put out a handful of good albums Kind of also sounded like the Thinking Man's Coldplay. A little smooth, lots of string sections. They had a lot of good songs. Kind of a seeming inability to rev things the fuck back up. And now the lyrics are all being written by Nicky Wire, who's uh, not bad. 
kind of doesn't hold a candle to Edward's much more um, straightforward political sloganeering. But in 2009, they located um, a folder of old lyrics written by Edwards. And I think the folder was called either Journal for Plague Lovers or Everything I Have is Nothing But It Is My Nothing. That would have even been a cooler album title than Journal for Plague Lovers. But they utilized these lyrics and they got Steve Albini to produce the record. And it actually ends up being probably their fiercest album since the Holy Bible. I mean, the album art was from uh, the painter Jenny Seville, who also did the album painting for the Holy Bible. They used the same stark uh, like aerial font with backwards R's. You know, I mean, they were kind of directly alluding to that record, saying, you know, we're serious, this shit means something. And I think it was their best album since then. Probably my fanic, uh, my favorite Manic Street Preachers record, and is my favorite album from 2009. Unfortunately, uh, subsequent albums kind of re-upped the wuss factor. Like albums like um, Futurology, Postcards from a Young Man. Um, again, not bad, which is not as raw as they once were. It's almost like they kind of said, we're only kidding, which is a disappointment, but you know, I'll take them where I can get them. I actually, the band, they hardly ever, ever play the States. They uh, played New York City on this tour back in 2009. It was quite awesome. So, the whole record is very good. Let's listen to She Bathed Herself in the Bath of Bleach. I love the chorus in this song. I say this chorus can annihilate a city block. Let's uh, fire that up right now. Thank you once again for hanging with us here during this period in time. Uh, I really want to say it, especially like I know as an avid podcast listener without a commute, without a ton of time outside of my house, without a ton of me time, if you will, my podcast consumption has gone down like crazy. So I'm guessing it's the same for all of you guys uh, in a lot of ways, unless you are still commuting to an essential job. If you are, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but 
for all of you who are listening to us throughout this period in time, thanks so much. We know that it's just a weird time with a lot of different things pressuring us right now. And as a result, your enjoyable listens to podcasts may be down. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so we covered in this episode, episode 96, the backwards down the number line from August 16th, 2009. Um, we had Kevin Finkel on anesthesiologist from Hartford hospital. Is that correct? Yes. Also yes, yes. one of Dave's best friends. Uh, one of really, really good guy. Uh, I'd, I'm happy to call him a friend as well. Uh, we had him on in our Broadway episode. He knows a ton about music. He's a really intelligent, very thoughtful guy who is on the front lines right now of the coronavirus fight. And we were so thankful to have him on for a bit of time, give him a little bit of respite, um, as well as give us some great information about what this whole experience is like. As we jumped into part two, we talked about the big return, and I focused on Lou Reed and John Cale of the Velvet Underground's Songs for Drella from 1990, focusing on the song Trouble with Classicists, while Dave talked about one of Dave's favorite bands of all time. I think that it's only appropriate to call them Mission of MF Burma. Mm, yes. The album On, Off, On, the song Falling. In new album recommendations, I talked about the next three. Dave talked about Trace Mountain's Lost in the Country, two fantastic recent records that we highly recommend. And then in segment two, this is my 09 review, which I'm really surprised that Fish hasn't done a bad cover of that song. You know, like just once, like in 2011, yeah, it's really uh, crazy that Fish hasn't played Cam Review. Right? Like, even without they've the played, horns, I feel like they would do it. They've played several several worst trade songs. <laughs> <laughs> so, in segment two, this is my 09 review. I talked about one of my favorite records of all time, Grizzly Bears, Vecatomist, the song While You Wait for the Others. Dave talked about Manic Street Preachers, the album Journal for Plague Lovers, the song She Bathed Herself in a bath of bleach. Absolutely shows you where Richie Edwards' mind was coming from. That song title. <laughs> Lots of really dire song titles in that record. So, just a reminder, you can always find us on social media. We're at Twitter, at underscore Beyond the Pond, one word. On uh, Spotify, we've got the Beyond the Pond podcast song master playlist. It's got well over 500 songs that now always um, when we release an episode, the extent of the songs are available on Spotify. We will put them there for convenience. Of course, really in this day and age, you should be spending as much time on Bandcamp as possible putting money into the hands of your favorite artists because Lord knows they need it now more than ever. Buy Bandcamp, buy vinyl, buy shirts, go on to Patreon. Go to Riley Walker's Patreon. Jesus Christ, that guy yes. was a ton of stuff. So much. Crazy. It's, so much of it is such gold. Total crazy. I also just recently joined Nicole Atkins Patreon. I know uh, she's also one of my favorite artists doing a lot of good stuff. So you can find this podcast and the other wonderful podcasts of the Osiris Media family at osirispod.com, O-S-I-R-I-S-P-O-D.com. Leave us an iTunes review. We love reading them. It increases our visibility in Apple land. Absolutely. 
So you probably noticed this episode came out just a week after our previous one. That was intentional. We are working towards episode 100, which was going to be our last episode to drop right before Fish Tour, I believe. But we'll see what happens. By the point that this episode this episode drops, there may not be Fish Tour. Uh, it's not looking likely at all. No, um, which unfortunate, but pretty fine in the grand scheme of things because it means people are being safe, trying to be safe. And I'll tell you what. And they can expand this as much as they want. But Tuesday nights are becoming my favorite night of the entire <laughs> fucking week. Uh, I said on Twitter a couple dinner movies ago that uh, we uh, intended from the start of the podcast to release every other Tuesday. Because Tuesdays have no feel. We want to give you something nice on a Tuesday. It's amazing that it took a global pandemic and fish to make Tuesdays my favorite day of the week right now. So uh, mm. if they keep doing that, that will offset the need to go and – I mean I still need to go see fish. I still need new fish. But they're doing a really good job of uh, at least to this point recording-wise selecting high-quality 3.0 shows that we're really enjoying watching. Yeah, I was just so, talking with some friends earlier saying obviously nobody wants to be in the global pandemic – but if you could have said uh, that in the month of April and May going forward, I can get like awesome fresh beer cans delivered right to my door no matter what because they relaxed all the alcohol laws in New York. I'd be like, great. What's the trade-off? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Be, be careful what you wish for. Yes. Um, so we we are record, we are releasing episodes through May and through June here every other Tuesday. Um, we're going to probably within the next week or so of this episode dropping, uh, start to talk with you guys a bit about episode 100 and some ideas that we have surrounding that episode. We're really excited about it. We want to do something fun, something special. Um, but, uh, keep an eye out every other Tuesday. We got some great jams coming up as well as we're going to get to the point where we can finally sit down and say, what are our top albums of the year so far? Yes, 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 yes. So, if you hung this far, like Brian was saying, it's hard to listen to podcasts these days, so we give you extra kudos, and thank you for that. Tons of kudos to my good friend and hero, Kevin Finkel, for coming on the pond, and uh, yes. thank him for doing all that he's doing on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic in Hartford, Connecticut. And hopefully you've enjoyed this episode, and we'll come back, we'll hold hands, we'll sing Kumbaya, and we will go... Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media. It is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, and it is edited by Brian Brinkman. Ooh.